So um, here we are. What are we? Week three, Savage Sayings of Jesus, where we're talking about some of the more uncomfortable, some of the harder teachings that Jesus has, has given. And I realized um, as I was looking for difficult passages, that things that Jesus has said, um, most of the things that he said at one point or another, they were kind of savage. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. So it was hard to pick, but the one that we're going to do today is one of my uh, one of my uh, favorite verses, something that I repeat all the time. Uh, but before we get to that, this last Friday, sitting down with a bunch of our staff, we do devos in the morning here, and uh, so the whole staff was there. And I don't know how this came up, but we started talking about the time that my uh, family and I. We lived in a trailer in our front yard, and so if you've been here for a while, you, you probably heard about that, is uh, my, my bright idea was, because our family was uh, expanding, we're having more kids, we need a little bit more room because our house is pretty small, that um, we would remodel our house on a very low budget, and I would do a lot of the work myself, because, you know, I got a lot of spare time, I guess. And so we started working on the house, and I thought one of the ways that we could save money, because we can't live in the house, but we can't afford rent in like an apartment in another place, so... I purchased a travel trailer that we parked in our driveway that we lived in. So I had two kids under five, or five and under, uh, a wife who was very pregnant at the time, and we lived in this trailer for seven months in the driveway. Oh, it just built such a healthy and strong relationship. You know, we just, whew. And so during that time, while we're living in this trailer, um, there came a point in which I thought, I'm not sure if this was a wise decision. I kind of started to second guess, and some of you guys, immediately when I said I lived in a trailer in the driveway for seven months, you thought that would have been when I would have said this was a bad idea, but no. I, uh, I moved in. We're having fun. It's great, and the moment that I knew this was a bad call was I was laying in bed, and I hear my wife get up because it's very close quarters. Everybody can hear each other, and she starts vomiting all over the place, and I thought, well, that's a bummer. She's pregnant. I'm not, though. I'm going back to sleep. And, uh, oh, it gets worse. And so as she's throwing up, I think, oh, well, you know, hopefully she feels better. I'll pray for her. And I hear my daughter start to throw up as well. And I thought, what a coincidence. They're both, huh. And not long after that, I hear my son start throwing up. And there was liquids flowing out of every orifice in that entire thing for the next 72 hours. It was a disaster. I'm running from one mess to another, cleaning up this mess. And I'm thinking, rent doesn't sound that bad right now. You know, it, it is, is, this, is, this is a messy situation. My wife said after I shared that last night, she said, you know the moment when I knew it was a bad idea? is when I was laying in bed and a mouse ran across our bed sheets right over my stomach, and I thought, I'm done. I said, not with the marriage, right? Like, just with the trailer? And she's like, man, I'm not sure. I was a little iffy there. <laughs> I don't know if you've had those moments where you have second-guessed yourself, and in which you, you come to this place where you go, I'm not sure this was a good idea. Like, this whole weekend, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because I'm talking about it. I have changed shirts five times this weekend. Last night, I came to church with one shirt on. I came, I looked in the mirror, and I went, oh, I look fat in that. So then I put another one on, and I said, oh, that's not any better. So I put a third one on, and I finally realized it's because you're, you're chubby. So uh, the shirts weren't going to help. But I have changed shirts after every service. I just can't, I don't care about fashion. I'm just like, I don't know, I can't get comfortable. And so I'm, I just, I'm second-guessing myself. And you've probably done this too, right? It could be something simple where uh, maybe it's a, uh, it's a time when you were speaking to somebody, and immediately as those words come out of your mouth, when are you due? 
you think, oh no. No, come back, words. Come back, words. She's not due. <laughs> or, or maybe it's, uh, it's something you wore out of the house. Like you got ready in the dark and it looked good. Like everything was looking good when you, when you were looking in the mirror when it was dark, but then you got out into the light and you thought, well, this is unfortunate. And everybody around you thought, yeah, this is unfortunate. Or that fit 10 pounds ago, but not any longer. We all have those moments where we're kind of second-guessing, and maybe it's um, something a little bit more serious. It's about your job, and you show up, and you just think, did I make a mistake here? This is, this is not what I thought it was going to be. This is not the career that I thought that I was getting into. There's a, um, a hashtag on Twitter. It's hashtag why I quit, and it's people who quit their jobs, and they're explaining why. I, I, I found a couple that I thought were kind of funny. Um, one person said, I babysat this kid who kept pointing at me and saying, you're next. <laughs> After the fourth time, I gave my two weeks notice, hashtag why I quit. Uh, my old job had a phone in the restroom. Our boss would call if he thought you would be in there for too long, hashtag why I quit. <laughs> Seems like an invasion of privacy, I don't know. But it could also be something even more serious than that. Is I, I know that there are people who they're second guessing maybe even the person that they married. That they, they're not who they thought they were going to be. And this is not how they thought it was going to work out. And so they're kind of second guessing this decision. And I also know that there's people who are second guessing their faith. Where they're not really sure, is this worth it? Like, is this true? Does God even exist? And maybe it's not like I'm intentionally guessing, I'm intentionally walking away from my faith. Maybe it's more I, I'm drifting away. It's not like a conscious thing where I'm saying like, I can't believe this any longer. It's more, I really want to pursue these things over here. These things are more important to me. And so I'm just starting to drift. And if you fast forward just a few years, you realize that faith has been left behind. And so I want to look at a piece of, uh, piece of scripture where Jesus what's really Peter asked this question to Jesus, which I think is probably one of the best questions in the Bible. And it's a, it's a question that's bring, brought a lot of clarity into my own, own life and faith. So here's the uh, passage we're going, going through. It's uh, John 6. So if you have your Bibles, your Bible app, we're going to be going to uh, John chapter 6. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, one of the Gospels, stories of Jesus' life. And um, we're going to jump in, but let me give you a little bit of the context. So it's a very long chapter. A lot of stuff is happening. It's kind of a long story. And so it starts off where Jesus is doing a 5K, okay? You haven't read the Bible before, have you? You didn't know this. Jesus is doing a 5K. Um, he's feeding 5,000 people. And come on, I'm trying. I'm trying. Okay, you know what? <clears throat> what do you call a marathon for pastors, a rev run. <laughs> too, that was too young? Okay. Uh, why should you never run behind a car? You'll get exhausted. <laughs> it's not any better if you run in front, though. You'll get tired. <laughs> uh. You can use that if you want. No, yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh-huh. Yeah. Parents, use that for your kids. That is a dad joke. That is money. That is 
applicable? Okay, all right, whatever. Uh, anyway, so Jesus feeds 5,000 people, uh, pretty miraculous, only started with a couple of fish and some bread, and then he starts passing out. Everybody gets fed, but he's kind of over it because he knows that these people are only interested in what they can get, just another meal. And so he sneaks off, and he tells the disciples, I'm going to meet you across the, across the river, across the lake, and, um, uh, and uh, take this boat over there. And as they're taking the boat over there, he does this really cool trick where he can walk on water. He meets them like, oh, yeah, it's great. Okay, then he goes, he goes to the synagogue in a, a city called Capernaum, and he's in the synagogue. The crowd finds him. They're looking for their next meal. And so he sees this as a teaching opportunity. He says, okay, you guys are following me around. You like that cool trick that I did where I fed everybody, the whole walking on water thing. You know what? Let's, let's, get, let's get a little bit more serious about this. And he begins teaching this teaching and kind of the summary of it. And it's, a, it's a longer sermon. But he continues to say that I am the bread of life. I've come down from heaven. And he, and he goes on to explain this. And at one point, they're very confused, and they're thinking, you came down from heaven, and eventually someone interrupts and goes, uh, Jesus, I don't, I don't want to be rude, but you said that you came down from heaven. I know your mom and dad, Mary and Joseph. <laughs> I know the city that you're from. I've actually been to your house before. That's clearly not true, and as far as this bread thing goes, I'm not even really sure what you're talking about. And so he goes on to explain, okay, look, here's the deal, is I'm using an analogy, and the way that analogies work is, so uh, for example, you have bread. I just gave you bread. Everybody ate, everybody's full, everybody's happy. Well, you know how you need that fulfillment? You need that sustenance? You need that, that uh, bread to bring you life? Well, the same thing is true of your soul. Is spiritually, you need to be sustained. You need to be fed. And the only way that that's going to happen is if you consume me. I am the bread of life that you're looking for. And so uh, we're going to jump in at uh, this point of the story because if they weren't confused before, they're going to be confused now. And if they weren't freaked out, they're about to be really freaked out because it takes a weird turn. Here's what happens in verse 53. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Makes total sense, right? <laughs> right? Like, he says, listen, if you want to be raised up from the dead, and when you're raised up from the dead, you're going to have eternal life, the way that you can do this is you're going to drink human blood. Now, I don't know if this description sounds familiar to you or not, but there's, that's a vampire, right? This is how vampires work is they once were dead, they're brought back to life, they live forever, and they suck on human blood. That's a vampire. Christian vampire, I guess it's the same thing, because Jesus says this is what it's going to take in order to follow me. And so he's, he's intentionally thinning out the crowd here. The image that we have of Jesus, and it's the right image, is the one that maybe is painted in the prodigal son, where we see him running towards us with his arms wide open, and he's ready to embrace us, and ready to love us, and accept us, and that is 100% true. But there's also this other side of Jesus where he says, I'm going to make this really difficult to follow me. I'm going to like turn up the heat in this discipleship thing. Following me is going to become really difficult. It's going to be costly. And you might think, well, why would Jesus want to do that? Why would he want to thin out the crowd? Why would he want there to be less disciples? And it's not that he wants less disciples. He just wants the disciples to be committed he wants them to be serious because he knows that he deserves every bit of their commitment. So the way I think of it is like this. One day, I mentioned this last week, um, my daughter is going to turn 30, and then she's going to want to get married. 
right? Not a, she can't until then. 30. And so there will probably be a guy who will come over to the house, and they will come and knock at the door, and they'll say, uh, they're going to say, sir. They better say, sir. <laughs> sir, Pastor Cody, Sir, Pastor Cody. Um, <laughs> I am here to ask for your daughter's hand in marriage. And I'm not going to just go, yeah, yeah okay, cool. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> you know, when can you, let's make this happen. You know, she's 30 already. Let's get her out. Um, no, I'm not going to say that. What I'm going to do is I am going to grill this guy. I'm going to ask him every question because here's what I'm going to do is I want to make sure that this man values my daughter. You better not come in here going, well, you know, I mean, she seems like the best option that I've got. <laughs> I mean, she seems okay. I'm kind of, to be honest, I'm going to take the next six months, leave my options open. We're going to see what happens. I would, in the most Christian way possible, um, tell him to exit the house right? Because I know that my daughter is far more valuable than that. You don't get to just come in here and, oh, I'm in a relationship with her because, you know, it's convenient. It works. No, uh-uh. You come in here on your hands and knees and say, may I please, please marry your daughter? And I'll say, I'll think about it. <laughs> You've got to imagine that this is true of Jesus as well, is he's not going, guys, I need you, please, please, if only I had Cody, if only Cody was in a relationship with me. No. Now, does he want me? Of course. He wants me to be in a relationship so bad that he would die for me. However, he's not needy. He doesn't need me. He wants me. And it's a good, it's an important distinction, is because when he turns up the heat, he's really saying, are you in this or not? Are you committed to this relationship or are you in it for convenience? Something that you can get from this relationship. So let me skip down to uh, verse 60 because this, this is their response to him uh, making these big claims. On hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? So it's a, the disciples are not the 12. They're going to be referred to as the 12 in a minute. The disciples are just the crowds of people who follow Jesus around. And they're saying either one of two things. They're saying this is really hard because it's confusing, or this is really hard because of the commitment that you're, you're requesting from us. Either way, they're saying this is tough. Continues on 61. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? <laughs> That's a great question, Jesus. Because the more I read Jesus' words, the more I'm convinced that he's an equal opportunity offender and he will offend everybody at some point. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you come from. I don't care what your beliefs are. He will offend you because he will get in your kitchen and you will disagree with him. It could be about the way that you view and you use your money. It could be about sex and marriage. It could be about your priorities. But at some point, you and him are going to come into conflict. Give it a little bit of time, start getting into the scriptures, and you will see that you guys are not going to be in agreement. And so he's going to ask, does this offend you? Another way to look at this is not only does this offend, me, offend, offend you, but does this make me doubt? Do you start to question me? Do you start to maybe rethink following me? Because maybe you, you, you prayed one time and God didn't show up, and you couldn't understand why he wouldn't show up. And so you've begun to doubt a little bit. Maybe it's because you look around in the world and there's so much pain and evil and suffering and you think, could there really be a good God out there? Maybe you look at the church and you look at Christians and you think, if this were true, those Christians should look a lot different, but they don't look any better than I do. In fact, sometimes they're far worse. 
And then we start talking about the supernatural. We start talking about this miraculous stuff in which we have to believe that a man raised from the dead and then ascended into heaven, that's a really tough pill to swallow. Can I believe that? It's interesting is we think that we're so smart, we're post-enlightenment, scientifically minded people. But Jesus says in the next line, he says, what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? What if you see something miraculous? What if you have to believe something miraculous about me? How much more difficult is it to not just accept some hard teachings, but to accept that I have these supernatural abilities? It almost makes me uncomfortable to even have to say it in public as Jesus can do something supernatural? And so here's one of the tips I have if you're a doubter like me, is you need to learn to doubt your doubts. Doubts are a natural part of faith, something that I, I've done, I've wrestled with myself, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But one of the things that I've learned is I can't just, I can't just doubt the, the issue, I have to also doubt the source. I can't just doubt like, okay, does God exist, or is the Bible reliable, or did Jesus really raise? That's like the content of my doubt. But I also have to look at the source of my doubt. Because oftentimes, I'll find the answer to my doubt, and not the content, but the source. And so let me give you kind of three, three things. Three times that we are most susceptible to doubt is times of transition, temptation, and trouble. Let me say that again. Transition, temptation, and trouble. And three experiences that shape our beliefs are social, personal, and intellectual. So let me explain this a little bit. Transition. Um, when I am going from high school to college, college to graduate school, from being a, a student to now being a professional, from being single to married, from uh, no kids to kids, from kids to empty nesters, when I'm in those seasons of transition, that's when I'm most susceptible to doubting. Also, when I have this temptation where it would be really, really convenient if my faith weren't true or I could at least modify it a bit in order to pursue this person or this thing. And then, of course, times of trouble. Where was God? Why didn't he show up? Why is he allowing this to happen? So let's look at those three experiences. Social experience. We very much believe the things that the people around us believe, that we are shaped by the culture and the society and the people that we hang out with, good and bad. Our beliefs and our doubts are very much uh, influenced by the people we're around. So uh, right now, my parents are in Africa, and they're doing a, a, a pastor's conference there. We've been doing it for like 15 years, and they go and they teach a bunch of pastors, and it's great when you go there because it is such a different, it's a different world than the one that we're used to. And one of the things that was surprising when we first went was um, we'd go to these little rural villages and meet with these pastors, and they would come up to my dad and they would say, uh, are they not are they not paying you enough at your church? I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah, your wife, she is so skinny. Are they not paying, her, paying you enough? I was like, what? Because one of the signs of beauty and of prestige is that your wife, the bigger, the better. And so when your wife is skinny, it means you can't take care of her. You can't provide for her. There's something wrong here. And my mom was like, <laughs> we're not bringing that back to the States, okay? Like we are, that is not something I'm signing up for right now. But even our very, uh, our, our very per our perspective on beauty, fashion, politics, religion, all of that is shaped by the people we're, uh, we're surrounded with. Second thing is this, is uh, personal experiences. Is I've met lots of people who have come to faith and also walked away from faith because of something that has happened in their life. People have come to faith because they've had this experience, they were praying, they were worshiping, they were reading the scriptures, and it just felt like God was speaking directly to them. It was as real as the, the, their hand in front of their face. And yet, 
I've also had lots of people who said, I can't believe this because this has happened in my life. Because God allowed this to He didn't show up when I needed him to. And then there's intellectual experiences. Is we come across a piece of information that may confirm our faith or it may come and question our faith, but we have to wrestle with um, this new piece of, of information or evidence. And, and this is my own personal experience, is most people want to blame the last category. Whenever I'm talking to somebody about doubt and questions that they have, and I love these big questions. Like, I love the big questions. And they come to me and they go, okay, Cody, what do we do about, you know, Genesis? And then there's like the Big Bang and there's evolution. And the, how do we put all these two together? And we'll start talking about it. And, you know, I've spent a number of years thinking about this. And so I've got a decent answer, I think. And, and here's what I realize: At the end of that conversation, they will... They, they will have the same amount of doubt as they did prior to it. Because it's almost never intellectual. <laughs> we want to blame it. We put up a smoke screen and go, well, I can't believe because of X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, maybe. But if I clear up those questions for you, are you going to believe then? No. Well, why? Because if we dig a little bit deeper, a little bit under the surface, we'll go, oh, that's why. Oh, there's this experience. There's this relationship. There's this thing that you want to pursue. There's this, this past hurt that you have. It's almost always something else. And so we have to learn to doubt our doubts. We have to learn to look at our doubts and say, okay, I'm not going to just wrestle with the content and try to figure out the answer. I also need to look at the source. Because if I want to overcome my doubts, i got to address it um, correctly. Okay, we got to continue on because I'm going to run out of time. 68, or 66, here we go. From this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So it's been fun, Jesus. It's been great. Love the miracles. Parables were fun. Don't really get them, but they're entertaining. Um, the food, fantastic. Call me when you're going to do some more of those. As of right now, not interested because it just got really weird, and it's almost a little bit cultish, kind of, and so I'm not really sure if I'm down for this, and so I think I'm going to be done. This is where I get off the train. And so all the disciples begin to walk away. There's a great learning here. Salvation is free, but following Jesus will cost you something. So, so salvation is this eternal life that Jesus offers us. By his death, if we accept it, then we get to go and have eternal life. That's salvation. Nothing we can do to earn it. However, once you do accept that and you begin following Jesus, you become a disciple of Jesus, it's going to become costly. There's going to be some opportunities you're going to miss out on. There's going to be some pleasures that you would like to seek that you're not going to get to do because following Jesus is going to cost you something. I don't know what it's going to cost you, but it will cost you. And that's how you know that you're real, by the way. That's how you know that you're a disciple is when it starts going from something that's really contributing to my life to something that's being, become costly in my life. That's how I know that I'm in this deal. So Jesus, knowing the disciples' hearts, he turns and he looks at them and he says this, you don't want to leave too, do you? <laughs> you can't lie to him. He knows. Like it says, he knows their hearts. He knows what they're thinking. So you don't want to leave too, do you? Okay, this is awkward. Um, yeah, I sort of do. You know, like we were rock stars about 45 minutes ago until you started doing some weird speech about drinking your blood and eating your flesh. Now we're kind of outcast. I kind of do want to leave. Fishing sounds pretty nice right now. I think I want to go back. And so... There comes a time, I think, when most believers' life and their faith journey is they have to ask this question, do I want to continue on or is this, where I, is this where I get off? Is this where I stop? Is this where I leave? There was a, um, a, a period in my life, and it's a big part of my faith story, where 
I had to ask, or I had to answer this question. I, I grew up in church. My dad's a pastor. I love the church. I love the faith. It was, you know, it, it provided a lot for me. It provided a great family. It gave, it gave me a, um, a great community, a, a wife, just so many great things. And there came a time when I had to make the decision, do I want to continue on or have I gone far enough? So I was in my mid-20s. I was in this big transition in my life where uh, when I graduated from college, I started business, doing some business on the side and it grew and it started to make more money and it kind of became like a full-time thing and then uh, uh, it started bringing lots of resources and things like that. And so I had to make a decision. I had studied to become a pastor in college, but now there's like lots of money to be made and that's really nice. And so which of those two am I going to do? And so I prayed and I talked to my dad and I talked to friends about it a ton and I finally came to the cl- conclusion, okay, it, I'm supposed to do ministry. Like, God has placed me at this time with these uh, opportunities, and so I think this is what I'm supposed to do. It's funny because my dad always says um, that he was called into ministry. I don't ever feel like I was called into ministry. I feel like I just, like, volunteered, and God was like, yeah, you can do it. That's cool. Like, come on in, you know? (laughs) So I was like, all right, I'll volunteer to do ministry. And um, and as I'm making this big, life-altering transition— and Amy gets pregnant, and we're about to have our first child. I pick up this book, and I remember the exact place we're at. It's actually on my uh, iPad. And I don't know what made me read this, but the title was The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. And if you know anything about him, he's like the mo- world's most famous atheist. And the whole book was about why God does not exist. And so I started reading through it, and I don't know if I'd suppressed these questions or what, but all of the questions that I had been avoiding just came flooding in. Here's why God doesn't exist. Here's why evolution. Here's why evil. Here's why science. Here's why, and it just laid out all of these arguments of why I shouldn't believe this faith. And the doubts just started to just just consume me. And I wish I could say, oh, you know, I prayed about it and went away. It was years in which I was trying to decide, do I want to continue on or not? Because like, I'm not even just like saying that I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to be like a professional Christian in which I get up in front of other Christians and I say, here's why you should follow Jesus. And can I get up there and dedicate my entire life to saying that if I'm over here going, oh, but what if it's not true? What if this whole thing is just a lie? I went back to school. I got a master's degree in theology and I started to just wrestle and wrestle and wrestle. I had one philosophy professor who said, here's what you need to do. He said, you need to go and you need to read as much as you can. And every piece of evidence, if it's for or against or neutral, you need to put, place it in a pile, make a cumulative case for or against God and decide, does he exist or not? Is, the, is Jesus really who he claimed to be? And at the end of this journey, it took me years. I finally went, okay, I can believe this. This is where it's pointing. This is where all the evidence leads. Great. But here's the, maybe the shocker. I still doubt like, all the time, I still doubt. Maybe I shouldn't admit this because I'm a pastor, and you go, ooh, I'm not sure if I can listen to this guy anymore. But look, this is the truth. I pray on a consistent basis, Lord, please take this away from me. I hate the fact that I doubt. But I've learned to pray this prayer. I said, Lord, please take the doubt away. But if you don't, I understand why. Because I've also realized that the doubt is a thing that has actually grown me the most. Because without the doubt, I probably would be pretty apathetic. But with the doubt, it makes me go study. It makes me get into my spiritual disciplines to get on my knees every day and pray to get in the scriptures because I know that I can't coast through this thing. 
that is a constant. And I, I also know that it's my disposition. I'm probably going to go the rest of my life doubting. My, my wife is on one end of the spectrum where you could not convince her that God doesn't exist. Like, you just be like, well, look, here's this, 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 and she'd just be like, I don't care. I don't care. I'm like, no, 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 but you need to care. Here's why. Can you I'd give her an argument? She'd be like, no, nah, I don't care. There's nothing you can tell me right now. And I'm over here just going, now, do we live in the matrix or not? Like, I'm very skeptical right now. I don't, oh, I'm confused. And so I've realized it's just going to be a part of my faith journey, but it's probably the most painful and impactful part of my faith journey. It's this, it's this gift and this curse that I've been given. It's the thing that's going to push me forward, and it's also the thing that I wish I didn't have. Simon Peter says, I think, probably one of the most important questions in Scripture. Here's what he says. Jesus asked, do you want to leave? And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? And this is a brilliant question. Because what, what it's saying here is, Lord, if I walk away from you, I'm going to have to walk towards someone or something else. I don't get to just say, man, I have all these questions about Jesus, and I, I just wish he's not answering, he's not doing what I thought he would do, and so I'm going to walk away. You don't get to just walk away and say, okay, I'm done with him. Because when you walk away from him, you're walking towards someone or something else. And you're going to have a whole new set of questions and concerns, a whole new set of doubts. And so Peter's observation was, no one is a bystander. To not make a decision is to make a decision. And so everybody has a faith position. Everybody has a worldview. And so it doesn't just go, okay, you know what? Is this the perfect view of the world where um, I, I stand on this worldview as a Christian and I look out and it makes total sense of everything. That's not, that's not an opportunity that we have. Because yes, my worldview has questions and I've got concerns and I'm not really sure how this works out. But as I look at every other worldview, Mine is pretty solid in comparison to theirs that's crumbling. And so the question is not, will Jesus answer all of my questions? The question is, if not Jesus, then who or what will you go to? Is there a better option out there? And when I'm in like my deepest, darkest doubts, this is the question I ask myself is, where else am I going to go? Where else do I go? Is there another person? Can you think of another person ha that has more authority, more insight, that has changed the world more than Jesus? Is there another worldview? Is there a, 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 a set of beliefs that I can adopt that is going to make more sense of the world? No. I don't have anywhere to go. I'm stuck here. Charles Templeton, he was an evangelist in the 40s. He was a contemporary with... Uh, with Billy Graham, and they became good friends, and in fact, he was more popular than Billy was at the time, and they would go around, and they would preach, and as he was um, building his ministry, and ministering to more people, he began to have these doubts. Ah, oh, what if this isn't true? What about the Bible? What do I do? And so he was wrestling with these doubts, and, and he went to seminary, and he tried to figure it out, and if you fast forward about 10 years, he finally stood up and said, I don't believe anymore. I can't believe this faith anymore. This is like one of the mo world's most famous preachers at the time stands up and says, I'm not even sure if God exists. And so if you fast forward to the end of his life, he walks away from it. He writes a book about it. He, he totally abandons it all and becomes an agnostic. And a guy named Lee Strobel, who we've actually had speak here before. He's a Christian apologist and author. He goes to interview him for one of his books. And this guy's uh, Templeton's in his 80s at this point, And he says, look, after all of these years, totally rejected the faith, you're not interested. Do you ever think about Jesus? Like, what do you think about him? 
And Templeton begins to talk about how much he admired the person of Jesus and his character and what he stood for. And then I want to read from, this, from, this, uh, from the, the passage from this book because I think this gives us incredible insight. Here's what he says. In my view, he declared, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And if I, put, if I may put it this way, he said as his voice began to crack, I miss him. With tears flooded in his eyes, he turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. Because here's what he didn't consider when he walked away from Jesus. Is when I walk away from Jesus, I'm going to have to walk towards someone or something else. And are they going to be a better option than Christ? Because as he walked away and he realized, although I have questions about this, there is nothing out here for me. And when I look back at Jesus, I've walked away. It's really hard to go back when you do that. I'm not saying it's Paul, but it becomes hard. This pride in us, it becomes hard to bend our knee and say we're sorry and to come back. And so when he looks back at Jesus, he goes, man, I had it good there. I really miss him. And so for those of us who are doubters and we're thinking, man, do I really want to keep doing this? I don't want you to miss this question. Where else are you going to go? Who, who, else has a, who else has a better option? Peter uh, finishes with this. He says, you have the words of eternal life. As I listen to you, as I hear the insights that you have into the human heart, as you speak with this almost divine authority, those words aren't natural. Those words aren't human. It's as if those words have come from heaven themselves. And then he finishes with this. He says, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Yeah, we got a lot of questions, Jesus. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that you've said. There's some claims that you've made. I'm uncomfortable with some of this, Jesus, but here's what I've come to know. I can't walk away from you. Because even though I have doubts and even though I have questions and even though some of this doesn't make sense, I can't deny that you seem to be a person who was sent from heaven. And this is prior to the resurrection. After the resurrection, they stand up and they go, he really was from, uh, from heaven. He, he raised from the dead. But as we look at all your claims, we look at your authority, we look at the way that you've transformed the world, we look at the historicity of the resurrection, even though we have questions, where are we supposed to go? Because you're the one who has words of eternal life. You've been sent by God. And so the question that I have for so many students over the years who are thinking about walking away from their faith, people who are just disappointed in God and, and are tempted to just say, maybe he doesn't exist at all. The question that I want to leave them with, and the question that I just want it to be burned into the back of your mind when you face this is, where are you going to go? To whom shall I go? The disciples didn't understand what was hanging in the balance and the answer of that question. Because if they had said, you know what, we're going with everybody else. The crowd left, we're going too. You know what would have happened to them? I don't know. We wouldn't know who they are. That's where their story would have ended. But now there are billions of people who know these disciples, who get to read about their story and read how Jesus used them to turn the world upside down. And I do believe that in those moments when I'm tempted to go, oh, do I still believe this? I remember, wait a minute, what is hanging in the balance that I don't know is in the future? Like for my family, for my marriage, for my future, the only way that I'm ever going to find out is if I continue to be faithful. And so the question is, if not Jesus, then who? 
If not Jesus, then what? To whom will you go? Let's pray. Lord God, faith and doubt go hand in hand. And um, sometimes there are seasons which we are plagued by doubt. For others of it, it feels like this is just going to be the burden that we have to bear, which we are constantly um, plagued with questions. And wherever we are, Lord God, and whatever maybe deep, dark place of doubt that we may find ourselves in, that we would be reminded that you're the best answer. That although we see through a glass darkly, that we don't get to see everything that you see, you have given us enough to continue to be faithful, to continue to trust, to continue to walk with you. And so, Lord God, if there is anybody in this room who's really been struggling, thinking maybe, maybe this faith thing isn't gonna work out, that they would be reminded that you are their best hope, that you are worthy of our worship and our trust, and Lord God, there is something in the future for us with you. And so, Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for being so good to us, for loving us even in the moments when we doubt. In his name we pray, amen.